Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome to season two of Holy Heretics. We have an incredible lineup of guests coming your way. But before we get to all of those guests and all those names and even our special guest today, I wanted to pause and introduce everyone to our new co-host, Kelly Rose Lamb. Kelly lives in Vancouver. She's one of the cool kids like me with three names. Um, <laughs> Kelly, Kelly, welcome. I'm really, really glad you're here. Thank you so much, Gary Allen. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I can like I can hear your smile again over the phone. I, I am smiling. How did you know? You're, you're always <laughs> smiling. You you make you make me smile. So you have to. Fun. You just have to. If you are a loyal listener, you may have heard Kelly's story in episode 26 of season one, uh, titled "Rejecting Patriarchy, Finding Deeper Faith," in which she describes her own journey as a woman in a church mostly ruled by men. Um, Kelly, do you mind just for folks who didn't hear that, um, maybe to, to share just a little bit of your faith journey, as well as kind of what led you to Holy Heretics. Absolutely. I am at Holy Heretics because I firmly believe in dialogue and asking hard questions. And I think it is a really safe space to hear from a lot of people who are expressing their their spiritual journey in a unique way. I grew up in a evangelical church in the charismatic movement. I I loved that experience as a child. Um, but growing up, I became more acquainted with contemplative prayer and a whole bunch of different deeper versions of faith. And then eventually moved through an ordination process where I was met with kind of the underbelly of patriarchy. Uh, and that caused me to stop and ask a really hard questions. And, you know, the deconstruction of patriarchy, I think, is a thing that a lot of Christian women are going through. And it's a really brutal journey. And there's almost a cascading element to the questions that you have to ask and what you have to be okay with. Hmm. Um, and so I'm I'm currently in a place where I have deeply held beliefs and believe in, in Christ and who he is in this world today. But I'm also navigating big questions around where women fit, um, how the Bible has been taught to our modern world, what we, we believe is true and not. And so it's a really unique phase of asking asking questions and not really knowing where those are going to lead, um, but also holding on to these deeply held beliefs and roots. Hmm. One of the things that we've talked about off air is how uncomfortable I think we both are with some of the labels that get tossed around in the deconstruction ex-evangelical community. And I'll be honest, I'm I'm not necessarily in deconstruction mode anymore. I'm not necessarily in, oh, everything's great mode anymore. I think mm -hmm. it's an ongoing process of shedding and adding and shedding and adding to your faith. And can you speak into that? Because I think there are others that feel that tension as well to where, yes, there was a time to be angry. There was a time that you just wanted to walk away. And many of us yeah. did. Many of us did walk away. Yeah. And yet, and yet, where are we going? Where are we walking into? Yeah, I think it's a definitely tough thing to be able to navigate the deconstruction phase and whether that's a singular topic or whether that's your entire faith, I think there is a significant ebb and flow to it. And I'm not necessarily someone who's going to say, you know, deconstruction absolutely leads to reconstruction and get on this path. Right. Um, but in a book that I've been reading called Women Who Run With The Wolves, there's this concept called the life-death life cycle. And for me, I think we strive to this kind of end goal, but actually there is a part of my faith that has died. But there's this like part of it will come back to life, or at least mm. I want to be on the journey of part of it coming back to life. Mm. And it can be in a faith concept or, you know, in, in your dreams, those can die and come back to life. But we're basically in this life, death, life cycle, our whole lives long, rather than a one-time death, you're gone forever. Right. Um, so it's this, it's kind of welcoming this 
seasonal element to it and welcoming the big giant questions that come that actually make you change part of your belief structure hmm. but then but then being okay with the fact that you know this, this part of this has died and and part of this may come back to life and it might look incredibly different um and and not to be scared by that process but to actually welcome it and say of all people who believe or of all people who have deconstructed there is there is part of this that feels like death and mm. and part of us come back to life and, and everybody's on their own journey but that's mine and so, so some of it is really coming back to life in a beautiful way where i'm looking for a deeper version of faith and you know some of it hasn't yet and i i think i am okay with that honesty hmm. well i actually really like that metaphor because it allows room for what's next and for growth. And I mean, honestly, if we think about it, we, we've written about this at Sophia Society several times that, as you said, everything is constantly changing all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, our seasons are moving from one season to the next. Uh, the The entire universe is dying and rising all over again. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the literal way of Jesus is death and resurrection. And maybe we can transcend some of these labels of deconstruction, reconstruction by simply saying, you know what, your spiritual journey is going to be cyclical. You're going to give birth right. to, you're going to give birth to new ideas and beliefs and other beliefs are going to die. And then guess what? It's going to happen again and again. And uh, when I'm looking at the future of this season, that's what I see. I see right. those conversations of people who have said, yeah, it's okay. Like I left this idea. I moved on to this idea. Now, am I going to stay there? Probably not. Right. Um, I'm going to move on to something else. So I, I love that metaphor. Thanks for, thanks for putting it into words that way. Thanks so much, Gary Allen. I really appreciate that. And I am really excited and honored to be here and be able to join you for season two and in, in talking to our amazing guests. And part of the reason I'm so excited about today is our guest really embodies this idea and and I believe have has really lived it out in his life already. Our guest today is Pastor Brian Zand. Brian is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Known for his theologically informed preaching and his embrace of the deep and long history of the church, Zan provides a forum for pastors to engage with leading theologians and is a frequent conference speaker. He is the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, A Farewell to Mars, and Beauty Will Save the World. Brian, welcome to Holy Heretics. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be with you. We're so excited to have you. Yeah. So, uh, Brian, we set off air that we had met uh, several years ago, but you fascinate me for a number of different reasons, if for nothing else, that you don't seem to fit into just a perfect stereotype. Uh, pastor, theologian, you're charismatic, you like Bob Dylan. I mean, you just sort of, you just de defy labels. And in particular, I think you defy these labels as, as it relates to deconstruction and reconstruction. And, but before we get into that, I'd love to just hear your story because um, it, it feels like to me from, from reading some of your books that you began to deconstruct at least a little bit of normative American evangelicalism years ago. And, and I began it, to deconstruct before it was in vogue. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And, Trendsetter. And, and in particular, uh, that place that, that I came to know you uh, for was just deconstructing and pulling away the kingdom of God with the American experiment or the American empire. Can you give us a little bit of the background of you, know, you deconstructing? before deconstructing was cool yeah I'll tell you some of my story let's see how let's see how short I can do this <laughs> it's kind of a long story so it's hard to do it real short but let's let's start well I I encountered Jesus in a very dramatic way as a teenager hmm. and I just overnight went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak and that was big news at Savannah High I promise you <laughs> And uh, everybody called me Fry back then, and they would say, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I'd say, yeah, I know, right? It's crazy, isn't it? But it has <laughs> happened. Hmm. And uh, by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry. This is during the Jesus movement, if anybody knows what in the world that oh, was. Yeah. And it was mostly a music venue for the Jesus music scene. 
but it began to take on more and more characteristics of a church. And 40 years ago, I don't know when this is going to air, but 40 years ago this Sunday, we're, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary as a church this Sunday. How wow. Old? Congratulations. Um, and I'm, tw- I'm 62, so people are kind of trying to figure, well, how old is this guy? Anyway? <laughs> um, so uh, November 1st, 1981, we began our first Sunday as Word of Life Church. And the church stayed small. And then it wasn't small. It began to grow. And then it grew like in a ridiculous way. Um, and so the, by, by the time we're into the 90s, especially the late 90s, by the metrics that Americans like to measure success, I had it made, you know, a big hmm. church and all that goes with that. Hmm. But I began to feel as I was approaching, let's say, you know, coming into my 40s, 2000, you know, that time period, I just began to feel an increasing dis-ease or unease with everything's great, right? I mean, you, you look at it and it's like, this is what you want, isn't it, BZ? And I began to say, I don't know. It, it hmm. doesn't feel like it's enough. I wasn't having doubts about Jesus. I was doubting um, uh, Christianity American style. Mm-hmm. And I just increasingly felt like the Jesus that had captured my heart as a teenager deserved a better Christianity than I knew. Wow. And so I didn't know what to do about it other than I thought, well, I'm going to back up as far as I can in understanding the whole history and trajectory of the church. I mean, I knew the New Testament quite well, but okay, let's, I'm going to back all the way up and start reading some of the church fathers and just try to understand what Christianity actually is and what's happened in the American context. This is a long story, so I'm going to just jump over all that. By the time (laughs) I get to 2004, I'd reached a real crisis, Mm -hmm. and something had to give, and things began to happen fast in 2004. I began to discover at last, I mean, it sounds strange, but I was embarrassingly ignorant of what I would call the good stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. I knew my own little world, but that was it. And I was kind of in the, you know, the the Jesus movement led us into the charismatic movement, which I describe as good until it wasn't. Uh, And then that kind of just led us into word of faith and even some of the religious right stuff and all of that. There was never a decision made that this is what we're going to be. It just sort of happens. Hmm. And but at one, I mean, I just in my early 40s, I woke up and I thought, how did I get here? I didn't start off as a radical Jesus freak only to end up as a you know, petulant Republican with a fist on his bumper, you know. (laughs) And so I began to discover, this this sounds so, this makes it sound too cerebral and not as spiritual as it was, but I don't know how else to say it. I began to discover good theology. Hmm. That may just sound sort of banal and all that, but, but it really made a difference. And I began to discover the best ways that we as the church, both in ecumenical width and historical length, have learned to talk about God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Hmm. And this began to change everything for me. Uh, I began to, I mean, I began to change significantly in how I thought about Jesus. You can call this deconstruction if you like, because I was jettisoning my eschatology, all that doom-oriented higher for violent nonsense out of dispensationalism. I began to alter the way I understood hell, the way I understood uh, atonement theories and all of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have used the word deconstruction for a couple of reasons. One, I had enough because along this time I began to really study seriously philosophy as well, which helps you in uh, reading theology. And so I was familiar enough with Jacques Derrida's deconstruction theory. He's, you know, the French philosopher that gives us the term deconstruction. And he's talking about deconstructing texts and how text never arrives at a fixed meaning meaning, and look for uh, look for the hidden bids for power behind a text or within a text. I mean, I understood Derrida on deconstruction and had read some of him and and I said, well, that's not really what I'm doing. Um, And I never saw it as violent. And it in my own life, it wasn't coming from a place of anger hmm. or cynicism. It was just part of my quest to discover a, a Christianity that was worthy of the beauty of Christ. 
Um, and of course, I'm doing this in a very public way, right? Because I'm preaching right. twice a week at Word of Life Church, which was a <laughs> wow. large church and all of that. And so if we, I can use that term, deconstruction. Uh, again, it's not my favorite metaphor, but my deconstruction was highly public and uh, not as popular with my congregation as I hoped. <laughs> hmm. uh, I actually think I could have brought most of the church along with me uh, through almost every theological change, adjustment, tweak, transition, except for one. And the one was when I really began to be outspoken about religious nationalism, mm. about American civil religion, about America not being a kind of biblical Israel, but a kind of biblical Babylon, and then began to raise the questions concerning um, the compatibility of following Christ and waging war. Mm-hmm. And when I adopted the position of the early church, that proved to be massively unpopular. <laughs> and we lost about a thousand people. Wow. And and I don't know how people hear that. You pro- People probably hear that, oh, you know, some guy with a big church lost a thousand people. Big whoop. So what? Who cares? Well, I cared. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in a town of 70,000 people, St. Joseph, Missouri. And... Whatever you think, I, I mean, I understand a lot of people sort of have a just a knee-jerk negative attitude towards a megachurch, which, by the way, I would never have thought of us as a megachurch. Hmm. I, I just we were just a church that at one point grew big, <laughs> you know, and surprised <laughs> us all. But the, the people who were leaving were people we knew. I, when I say we, I, I'm really referring to my wife and I because we were on this journey together. It wasn't just mm-hmm. me. We were right, right. there together. My wife, Perry. These are people that maybe we had led to the Lord and baptized and married and uh, baptized their children and married their children. And they were leaving saying mean things and, and mm. he's gone liberal or uh, which I that didn't make sense to me. I didn't feel like that was an adequate description of what was happening. Or they would say he's backslidden, which I really didn't understand because if anything, I felt like I was front slidden. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that was going closer to Christ as actually revealed than ever. Right. Um, so that was a very, it's a strange time yeah. from like 2004 for the next three or four years. Uh, I look back on it and it was a mixture of absolute, it was thrilling. Hmm. We were so happy that we were at last discovering a Christianity that was approaching, you know, the possibility of being as beautiful as Christ. You mm-hmm. understand? And mm-hmm. so we were thrilled with this. Uh, but then we were also suffering very real pain of being misunderstood mm-hmm. and rejected and that, that yeah. loss and that sting. So um, that's the story. And, uh, well, I should, I should wrap it up. It has a happy ending. Uh, I'm not hurting today. I can show you the scars, but there's no pain in them anymore. The Hmm. scars are part of my story. We came through it. I didn't know if we were going to survive. You know, I didn't know if the church would stay viable. Right. I felt like Jesus saying, are you all going to go away? You know, (laughs) and (laughs) uh, where will we go? (laughs) Yeah. Well, they they found places, believe me. uh, But we've been through that and we're healed and we're happy. And we feel like we're life's in a good place. And like I said, this Sunday, we're going to celebrate 40 years. Wow. Incredible. That's that's the story. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. You know, I will say that uh, I think that's one of the reasons where why I've always been drawn to you and your your work is uh, on a on a much more micro scale. That was my own deconstruction journey about 2005, 2006. Mm -hmm. Um. I was working at Focus on the Family for God's sake. I bet sakes. you didn't call it deconstruction then, though. No, no, I had no idea. I just that's only come about in the last at most ten years. Right, right. As, and, as a, a go to yeah, term. Yeah, and I, I didn't even know what I was doing. I just knew that the Christian right 
um, Christianity that that I had adopted and, and frankly assumed that was the only way was was the only way. And I changed jobs and went back to Milligan University, which was my alma mater, and reconnected with an old mentor, uh, spiritual director, and, and professor of mine who was a Stanley Hauerwas protege. Mm. Uh, who well, helped, Hauerwas. Helped, yeah, he helped Hauerwas write Resident Aliens, and and I began asking him these questions about the American Empire and about violence and. That was the tipping point for me to walk away from this. And and I think to some extent, I've always felt reticent to share that because I didn't have any abuse from the church. I, I wasn't really, I mean, I had prospered from it, you know, very similar, yeah. like, yeah, I, I won in this world. And yet there was something about the Jesus of nonviolence, the Jesus of an anti-Roman, anti-Babylonian, anti-Egyptian, anti-imperial theology that just won me over to say, okay, if, if this is it, then I'm all in this. Um, and then I think, as you said, on the back end, I'm like, oh, I, I guess I am deconstructing, but I'm not sure that I would have called it that, obviously, in, in, during that time. So, Yeah, I mean, I did write a little spiritual memoir uh, of this story. I call it Water to Wine because that's really my go-to metaphor. I mean, I have others. In this new book coming out, I talk about uh, your theological house and remodeling or renovating your theological house. But I always like the, I like the water to wine metaphor in that I, I at midlife, I reached the point where it felt like the wine had run out and the mm -hmm. party was going to be over. I still believed in Jesus, but, you know, the party was over. <laughs> and then Jesus shows up. Hmm. And does what he does best. <laughs> and he turned the water into wine. And uh, I, I discovered a thrilling, uh, beautiful, intoxicating <laughs> Christian faith that I really hadn't known. I, at, at the center of my faith was Jesus, as it should be. Hmm. And, and I know people that go through deconstruction, this isn't everybody's experience. But my experience was I... I really wasn't ever doubting Jesus. I just thought, you know, Jesus deserved a better Christianity than what I knew. Mm. And so, but the water did turn to wine. I, I don't want to oversell it. I'm not saying that, you know, everything's perfect and I feel like Word of Life is a perfect church. I mean, don't make me laugh. You know, no, I don't. I know that's absurd, but but it's good and it's healthy. And the water did turn to wine. And so that's how I talk about it. Uh, deconstruction is a little bit violent for me. Um, it sounds a little, I want to be careful. It's, I, let's, let's work with this metaphor. Let's imagine that uh, in some Russian monastery, there is an old, ancient, in fact, icon, might be a thousand years old, is found in this some neglected corner of the monastery, and they know it's valuable. It's an icon of Christ, and it's artistic and well-crafted, but over the years, it's become solid and covered with a thick patina of grime and soot and dirt so that the image of Christ and the icon is almost invisible. It's obscured, but it's valuable, so they, they want to restore it, and so they bring in a, a restoration artist. Well, I don't know a lot about how this is done, but I know this much, that when the restoration artist shows up in her toolkit, there's not going to be a sledgehammer and dynamite. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's going to be, you know, solvents and brushes, and, and she's going to work with, with great care and gentleness. And so when we realize that our Christian faith is been covered over with a lacquer and a varnish, that's garish and maybe it's, uh, you know, from fundamentalism or Americanism or consumerism. Uh, and we recognize that there may be, in fact, even some anger, certainly disappointment, some anger that this has happened. But let's remember that underneath all of that is the image of Christ. And so let's be careful. Uh, we, we don't want to just blow everything up. Mm. So um, that's, mm. that's kind of how I think about it, that that. Let's remember, we're dealing with something that is extraordinarily precious when we're right. talking about faith in Jesus Christ. So, yes, let's address the problems. Let's talk about this. How do we understand these various issues that trigger a mm -hmm. process of deconstruction? But remember that there actually is something precious here, and let's be careful with it. Mm. Mm. 
It's interesting. I think that you're right in that deconstruction can be a harsh process for some people. And there's definitely an evangelical community that is very loud. Yeah. But, but you seem to be offering, even in your analogies of water to wine and this just last one, you seem to be offering a almost third way beyond kind of doubling down on evangelical certainty and, and then complete deconstruction. How would you summarize this third way or maybe even offer it as a path toward reconstructing faith? Most forms of um, what is popularly called deconstruction in the evangelical context, and let's be honest, it is an evangelical phenomenon. Yes. Correct. Uh, Correct. Is, is a reaction to some form of fundamentalism. Hmm. And fundamentalism is a modern, and I, I stress it, modern, it's not ancient, it's a modern reaction Absolutely. to the rise of empiricism and yep. the enlightenment. And it is itself, in a kind of foolhardy way, attempting to use the tools of the Enlightenment to prove Christianity. And because it's fear-based, it feels like it's being threatened by the modern age. It resists the engines of modernity, especially science and higher learning. And this creates all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. But what I've seen is I've seen many people deconstruct their Christian faith, leave Jesus, but keep their fundamentalism. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, they, they just become fundamentalist ex-evangelicals. Right. And it's like, right, let's let's try something. How about lose the fundam- fundamentalism and at least consider trying to keep Jesus? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I, in the book, I tell the story of uh, – well, the book's called When Everything's on Fire. Mm-hmm. I, I want to tell you how that book came about. And yes, then, please. That was, that was our next question. So just go <laughs> ahead. Yeah. Well, Perfect. Um, so, so I've mentioned that Perry and I, you know, went on this, you know, very public. We, we just called it transition. We would call it our journey. We would sometimes talk about as the water turns to wine. We never said deconstruction because people didn't use that term then. Right. Um, and it was beautiful, but also painful. Uh, behind every beautiful thing, there's been some kind of pain. That's about mm-hmm. Dylan Line. You know, you, you'd be disappointed if I didn't drop at least one Dylan Line. <laughs> and so, so behind that beautiful thing, there was a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And in 2016, we took our first sabbatical ever. I mean, wow. then it was 35 years. And, you know, I'd, we'd take a vacation for a week or two, but never any extended break mm-hmm. for 35 years. And we ended up through a series of just learning and hearing stories and some things, walking the Camino de Santiago. Oh, mm. fantastic. This is this uh, 500 mile, well, the, the, the most standard route is the Francis route. Yeah. It begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, and goes all the way to Santiago de Compostela, Spain, uh, 500 miles. Mm. Now, what I'm going to say next will sound like a cliche, but I'm just going to ask our listeners to take it at face value. It changed our life. Yeah. All of the pain was somehow left on the Camino. Hmm. And we came back with a piece that has been with us now for five years. Well, we've gone back twice uh, and walked it two other times, most recently in 2019. Hmm. And... uh, so we're walking because we've just fallen in love with it. It's so good for our soul. Um, Absolutely. It, I'll talk a little bit more about this. Uh, I'm going to get to where we're going here. but No, <laughs> no, no. Take your time. I love talking well, about the Camino de Santiago. So the yeah. Camino de Santiago, I mean, it's, it's a medieval pilgrim route mm-hmm. that begins about 1,200 years ago, but 800 years ago was at its peak where as many as a half a million pilgrims a year were arriving in Santiago. Wow. And so, you know, you have this, for the, for the medieval Christians, the purpose of the pilgrimage was to arrive at where allegedly, or according to legend or however you want to think about it, the relics of St. James are, the brother right. of John. And so Santiago or St. James. And so their reason for going, there, there are many, but uh, the goal was to arrive in Santiago where they could venerate the relics. Well, to, if I want to, if I really want to, I can be in Santiago tomorrow from anywhere in the world. It doesn't take a 500-mile, 40-day walk. 
So for the modern pilgrim, as the cliche goes, the, the point is not the destination but the journey. But that's really true because for 40 days, we don't move any faster than foot speed. And our life is reduced to the blessed simplicity of living off of only what we can carry on our back, right? Mm. We don't take anything else with us. Mm. It's like that U2 album, All That You Can't Leave Behind. What do you take on the Camino? All That You Can't Leave Behind. And you mm. find out you can leave most of it behind. <laughs> and so we learned that, that walking the Camino, we just walk into a deeper place of peace where we really are more contemplative. And I'm convinced at this point that my pilgrim self is my best self. Hmm. And so we want to do it periodically. And in 2019, we're walking the Camino for the third time. And we arrive at uh, Castro Jariz. It's about 200 miles, two weeks into the long pilgrimage. And, I, and what pilgrimages do, they give you a chance to really think. You know, you just think, you know, if you're walking six hours a day, 12, 15 miles a day, you have a lot of time just to think. And I was seeing all of the churches because it's just lined with churches. You know, you'd go every few miles, you'll see a church, many of them a thousand years old. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, how different is the world of late modernity compared to those that were walking this path 800 years ago? Mm-hmm. And I understand that the challenges to Christian faith are real. And uh, it's, we, we live at a time that is not a friend to faith. And so to maintain faith in a secular age is a particular challenge. And I was thinking along those lines for probably a week. And finally, we get to where we're going to stay the night there in uh, Castro Jariz, lovely hilltop village in Spain. And I was sitting out on a terrace near where we were staying. And I just, I I said, well, if I could, if I could walk with people that were going through deconstruction or beginning to uh, possibly lose their faith, or at least they're being forced to rethink some things, Hmm. what would I say to them? If we could walk for a day or two, how would I talk to them? And I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I can't walk with people, really. I mean, maybe a few, but not many. Mm -hmm. But I could talk to them through a book. And so I sat on that um, terrace, and I outlined in my little journal that I had with me, just because you don't carry much. You know, you keep everything in one pen and one little journal and all that. And uh, I outlined the 11 chapters of what I wanted to say and gave it the title, When Everything's on Fire. Hmm. And I didn't really start the book, though, until January of 2020, I guess. So, um, nice so everything timing, was on fire. The and then, and then <laughs> everything was on fire. Right. 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 When everything's on fire, and then everything was on fire. <laughs> so I said, okay, all right. I thought it was on fire. Now it's really on fire. <laughs> now it's all a right. blaze. So that's setting it up. But, um, I want to go back to when was it? Was it when the Notre Dame fire was? You know, you know what what the pandemic has done. I can't remember when things happened. Oh, we're like, all on that boat. There's a huge gap, and you can't remember. Was that two years ago or three, three years, years ago? ago? Or one years ago, I can't remember. <laughs> or a decade uh, ago. <laughs> my wife and I were there. My wife and I were actually there, and I can't remember it. Uh, we were. We had been there four days. We'd been in Notre Dame four days before it burned, and then we were back in London. To, to head home and we're heading out of a pub. I, I, I know it's April 15th. I'm just trying to remember yeah. what year it was. I'm going to feel gonna, like it's 18 it right here in my book. I'm going to, I'm going to find it right now. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. <laughs> Fact uh, check. 2019. It there was Monday of Holy Week, hmm. April 15th. And we had just, uh, at, at Word of Life, we now, um, we pay a lot of attention to the church calendar. Obviously, right. we didn't as Jesus freaks, you know, mm-hmm. that right. we just never paid any attention to that. We didn't like tradition. We thought it was dead. And now we think, you know, there's aspects of it that are really valuable. And so during Holy Week, we have all just you know all kinds of services. And we'd had a noon prayer service. And I, I came out of the prayer service and, you know, there's an alert on my phone that Notre Dame was on mm-hmm. fire. I've been to Paris a bunch, a whole lot mm-hmm. of times. I, I think the City of Lights is probably probably the most beautiful city in the world. And I love Notre Dame. I've, I, when I'm there, 
I will go, I will certainly visit Notre Dame when I'm in Paris, every time I'm in Paris, but often every day. Mm. I would just walk there and, and, and go in and sit for a few minutes in prayer. I just love the place. And I, that hit me so hard. Mm-hmm. And I, I came home and I just sat. I don't think I sat. I think I stood. I think I stood in front of my television for three hours just and weeping. Mm-hmm. And um, But then, you know, and it was almost lost. Later, we found out later, I say we, you know, just it reported that uh, it came within about 20 minutes of completely being lost. Wow. And it was saved because a, a, a company of firefighters volunteered to pull hoses up those spiral staircases up the bell towers that I've, I've gone wow. up those before when another company had refused. And so oh, it's too dangerous. Gosh. We won't do it. And this is mm. what we'll volunteer. Mm. And if not for that, the bell towers would have collapsed and the whole thing would have been lost. Mm. Well, anyway, I'm watching this. And you know the time difference now. It's it's night in, uh, yep, in, in Paris. You know, Paris is in some ways it, you would describe it as the the center of um, European secularism. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the home of Voltaire and and the French Revolution and that sort of thing. And you know, the modern Parisian walking with shoulder shrugging indifference past Notre Dame is kind of a picture of the age in which we live. And yet surprisingly, when Notre Dame, let's, let's say it in English, when Our Lady mm-hmm. was on fire, nobody was shouting, burn it all down, hashtag empty the pews. <laughs> everyone knew, I'm, of course, I'm working with a metaphor here, but everyone knew that something they tended to ignore but thought was always going to be there, didn't want to attend anymore, but kind of like the idea that it was there when mm-hmm. they were really faced with the possibility of losing it, were not gleefully tweeting, ex-evangelical, empty the pews, burn it all down. They were weeping. Mm. Right. And I think, I think as long as we think that the church can kind of still be there, it's easy to be angry and cynical. And I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. I get it. On the other hand, do we really think that the world would be better if there wasn't a community of people passing on the story of Jesus? Do we really think the world would be better without the Sermon on the Mount, without the parable of the prodigal son, without the story of the compassionate Jesus who forgives sinners? I, I think when we realize if we lost that, we would really lose something. Hmm. Um, then we have a different a different approach to everything being on fire. Maybe I, I personally, when I read about that fire company that risked their lives to carry those those hoses up those bell towers to try to save Notre Dame, I wept. I mean, I really did. I thought, man, mm-hmm. I would love to meet some of them and shake their hands. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have done that. But then I thought, I, I kind of want to, in my own way, try to be one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are on fire. The church is rocked by by scandal. And it's in, a, in, in, in America, it's, it's turned in a very ugly direction in the evangelical context, especially. And everything's on fire, but I don't. I don't want to just curse it and lose it all. I want to try to help save it, and so that's part of what this book is about. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's. Um, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to kind of stay on this because I believe that is what makes your voice right now so unique. That, as Kelly said, you seem to have found a third way of of talking about these issues. Um, and and you even sort of def- defy that dualism yourself. I, I don't know that you would probably describe yourself as evangelical or progressive. Or well, curious, interestingly, you know. I never called myself evangelical yeah. ever. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like even simple labels like you know you said earlier, liberal, conservative, charismatic, liturgical. Um, you just seem to float in and out of those boundaries. In, in quite a healthy way, um, how, how, how have you been able to do that in the midst of a, a, 
an evangelical subculture that really does want us to pick sides. And, you know, you're either with with, with the abusers and with the fundamentalists, right. or you're over here with us who want to just burn this to the ground. I don't know how I do it, but I do it. <laughs> and for me, it hasn't been that hard. I've always resisted labels. Um, Soren Kierkegaard said, when you label me, you negate me. Hmm. And uh, I'll give you an example. So I wrote the book, A Farewell to Mars, where I raised the question, is the waging of war compatible with following Jesus? Hmm. And I end up you know, giving the answer, no, it's not. And then so people say, oh, you're a pacifist. I said, I'm not a pacifist. <laughs> Pacifism is an ethical position regarding violence that one can adopt independent of Christ. I mean, it may be admirable, but it doesn't describe me. I mean, I went a good portion of my life completely comfortable with the idea of waging war, even in the name of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, what I am is a Christian. And so now we can have the discussion on how Christ informs us regarding war. Um, see, when you, when you take that, if you take that label, oh, he's a pacifist. Well, then people are just, oh, he's, a, he's one of those. And there's, right, no, right. there's no more engagement. There's no more conversation. There's no more thinking. And so for whatever reason, and, and maybe a negative reason would be that I resist labels is I'm a little bit sensitive to the fact that my story is as a kid, as a teenager, I encountered Jesus in the Jesus movement, began leading a coffee house that accidentally turned into a church. <laughs> and so I'm sort of by default, the founding pastor of a non-denominational church. I don't even think that's a good idea. I don't think I believe in non-denominational <laughs> churches, but it's what happened. And because of that, my I, I not my whole life, but the last 20 years anyway, I've been very intentional about being very ecumenical mm -hmm. and embracing the entire body of Christ. I love Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism and mainline Protestant churches and, and, and the Anabaptist tradition, and yes, evangelical and charismatic. And so um, I don't fit any category easily. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to just, um, I don't know, I'm like a hobo. <laughs> I'm sort of homeless, but I'm just fine. I'm making my home wherever I happen to land. Hmm. And as far as I just, I find, I find allegiance to labels as very unhelpful in being a disciple of Jesus. Hmm. Uh, I know that that um, I'll, I have critics, and I don't mind having critics. It's part of having a voice. But I have critics on both the conservative and progressive side. Right. I've, that, and, that's kind of why I um, asked the question, because I've seen that, especially on social media, where yeah. you're, you're kind of getting picked at from, from both, both sides. From both sides. And I don't mind that. I mean, I don't enjoy it necessarily in the moment, but I like it that I don't fit. More. I mean, I am conservative in the sense that I have respect for the long history of the church, mm -hmm. for the tradition of the church. I think we need to have a special respect for Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. If for no other reason, then we have no way to explain how our faith came to be apart from those traditions. Exactly. There are grandparents in the faith. I mean, you know, you may not agree with everything your grandparents believe, but you don't go to the reunion and insult them. And respect. And so, and, and the, you know, the respect I have for the patristic tradition and the great tradition and liturgy. That's the conservative part of me. Mm -hmm. But I'm also progressive in the sense that I understand that Christian theology never reaches a full and final development. The only perfect theology is Jesus. What we call our theology is constantly in flux and up for debate. And so the journey's ongoing. So I'm conservative because of the respect I have for tradition and the history of the church. I'm progressive because the journey's ongoing. And right. all that needs to be said about God revealed in Christ has not yet been said. And so I'm comfortable with trying to inhabit both spaces, but I give allegiance to none of them. Hmm. I mean, once you say, once you give your allegiance to an ism, then Jesus becomes a kind of uh, 
mascot or hired spokesman to support what you're committed to, and that is your position. And I don't know how this will be taken. This could be a little edgy here, but I have seen progressive, I've seen some in the world of progressive Christianity be every bit as fundamentalist Mm -hmm. as those that would actually maybe even embrace the, the title of fundamentalist Christian. Right. Uh, it's just, it's just a progressive fundamentalism where you have to check every single box or you're cast out of their tribe. Well, mm. I, I didn't, I didn't join your tribe. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, if you want to cast me out, that's fine, but I didn't ever sign up anyway. So <laughs> I just, I want to try to embrace the entire body of Christ in ecumenical width and historic length. And, and the only label I take is the label of Christian, and I, and I do, and, and I'm in taking that label. I am saying something because there's others that want to want to uh, askew that label. And I'm mm-hmm. not a Christian; I'm just a follower of Jesus. I think that's trying to be too pure. Mm-hmm. I think we have to own our history and own mm-hmm. our sins. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Protestants want to pretend that you know they don't have any part in whatever. In let's say, uh, let's say the Crusades, because you know Protestantism begins after the Crusades. But look. You don't our 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 church history is not five hundred years old. It's two thousand years old. Absolutely. And so I think we have, you know, the dark side of Christian history. We own it. We say, "I'm sorry. We repent. That was terrible. We were unchristlike in that moment." But let's do remember this. And this has become this this quote is not in the book because I just I read it after I <laughs> I found it after the book was written, or it probably would have been. Uh, it comes from Rene Gerard, who I dearly love and, and mm-hmm. got to meet before he passed away. Mm-hmm. I think oh, he's just wow. one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. But um, Rene Gerard, in his pithy way, says Voltaire and his successors only criticize Christianity with Christianity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. The, the, the secular, vehement criticism of Christianity is done through an ethic that they have received from Christianity. And so in Mm -hmm. one sense, the caustic secular critique of Christianity is that Christianity, you're not Christian enough, to which we should say, you're right. Right. Pray Mm -hmm. for us. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Brian, one of our last big questions for you, when you're looking at the, the current context, what do you think is next for the Western church Post deconstruction. Mm, when you I like that question, it's a yeah. big question. Well, we still first have some time. Wanna, first thing I want to say is that Niles Bohr, the great physicist, said prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there you well, go. <laughs> well, it's difficult, but it is something I think about a lot. I think we have to. Yeah, and let me let me preface this by saying there is a kind of tendency to think that Western Europe is thoroughly secular while America holds on to a kind of vestige of Christianity. I think that analysis analysis is flawed. Uh, when I'm in Europe, which prior to the pandemic I was often, and I have actually been in Europe within the last month. So You went I, to Scotland. I followed I your Scotland. trip on Twitter, yeah. Mm-hmm. I did. When I'm in Europe, I am aware of very deep and very ancient, though usually forgotten, Christian roots. Mm-hmm. In America, what I sense is a very shallow and thin veneer of civil religion that passes itself off as Christianity. And I don't think America has the kind of deep roots. So I yeah. think that that what we think of as a robust presence of Christian faith in America is really energized by our allegiance to empire. Mm-hmm. And once that begins to fade, I think it's going to become apparent that America really is every bit as secular as Western Europe. Fascinating. So, as I think about the future of the church, uh, I think the church will be chastened. The church will be uh, greatly reduced. Uh, any, you know, we still see some of this in America, this ambition to control the levers of culture and to shape uh, the world through, you know, handling the, the, the levers of politics and culture. I think that's that's just all going to go away hmm. eventually and, and it will be very good for us. Now, it'll feel like a loss. 
but that was that was a mistaken bid in the very first place. If Christianity is going to be present in the you know as we get to the midpoint of the 21st century, I think it'll be present in a much quieter way, hmm. and that it'll be um, it'll be subculture, counterculture, not in an angry way, not in a um, but just it's going to be content with you know what we believe something that the wider society doesn't, and that's all right. I think I think one of the worst things that happened is that we became obsessed, especially in America, with changing the world. Yeah, we have this this rhetoric of change. We've got to change the world, and when you think that way, the temptation toward political power is almost irresistible. Hmm. But you obtain political power by succumbing to the third wilderness temptation and bowing down to the devil. I know that's putting it pretty strong, but that's the truth. And so, um, our task is not to change the world. That belongs to our Lord. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Not the church, not us, not you, not me. Mm-hmm. Our task is simply to be the world as being changed by Christ. We don't have to go change the world. We can't change the world. We can change our life. Hmm. We can allow Christ to change our life. And instead of trying to change the world, I simply want to be the world in the process of being changed by Christ. And so... Uh, and you notice that when Jesus gives the metaphors for the kingdom of God, and when and that's interesting too, Jesus never defines the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. The kingdom of God is the only thing he talks about, but he never defines it. He just <laughs> right. says, well, it's like this. Well, it's like that. It's, it's, it's like a woman putting yeast and bread. It's like a man sowing seed. It's like a, a lost son coming home. It's, and you notice that most of these metaphors are rather quiet. They're agrarian. There, you know, uh, a little seed grows a big tree and the birds are happy to nest there. Hmm. Uh, It's not this garish and loud and martial uh, advance upon society. It's not the crusader mentality. Hmm. And I think that is finally going to fade away. It will feel like many like a great loss, but I think it's a necessary loss. Hmm. And I think that... For Christianity to be, mm, what's the word I want to use? For it to have resonance with the wider society as we move further into the 21st century, we're going to have to be known for uh, being a repository of some forms of ancient wisdom. Mm-hmm. That is, if we can teach people how to be contemplative. Now, right now, I mean, that sounds ludicrous right now because so much of the most visible church in America is is, is the very opposite of contemplative. It's yeah. highly reactive. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and, and frankly, if, violent, if, right? If, yeah. If we can become known as a gentle, humble, contemplative people, I think that will give us a, a new hearing. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll maybe close by telling this little anecdote. I was teaching in a seminary a while back in California. And during a break, during a lunch break, uh, I overheard some seminarians talking. And this young woman uh, in seminary was working her way through seminary, uh, at, uh, working at a Starbucks. And she said, I told my, my co-workers at Starbucks, I said, I'm going on a silent retreat for three days and we have to turn in our phone. <laughs> and they said, three days without your phone? <laughs> I could never do that. I think I need to do that. Same. I think I want mm-hmm. to do that. So they, they, they were stunned by that very thought and then thought, I can't do that. And then thought, I think I need to do that. I, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. In a world where peace seems to be so unattainable, if in a credible way there is a group of people that say, we know something about peace. Mm-hmm. I, but it, but it, it can't be a marketing campaign. It can't be something that is, you know. Programmed. Programmed. No. Yeah. If, if it becomes real, if, if there are enough mothers and fathers in the church, sages, saints, that can truly pass on some contemplative practices, and it becomes truly embodied so that we become a peaceable people, um, 
that will again give us a new hearing. But all this other stuff, all that's loud and abrasive and challenging and big, that's I think that's going to fade away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, everything you just said there reminded me of uh, the Jesuit priest, Karl Rahner, who said, mm-hmm. that, you know, the Christian of the future will either be a mystic or or nothing at all. And I think that there's definitely some resonance with that quote and that that urge to a more contemplative, quiet, marginalized, dare we say, uh, potentially oppressed. I mean, that's in many ways we are returning to our roots pre yeah. pre jumping in bed with the empire and Constantine. That that seems to be the purer form of faith. So yeah, well, a, a mystic or. I'm looking it up. A mystic or nothing at all. That's uh, that's the beginning of part two of the book, chapter mm. nine. Mm. And yeah, and it does. It comes from Karl Rahner, who in 1971 said the devout Christian of the future will be a mystic. That is someone who has experienced something, mm-hmm. or they will cease to be anything at all. All right, that was that was 50 years ago. What mm. Karl Rahner 1971 called the future, we call today. I think we've arrived at that point that the Christian of today, very soon, he or she will be a mystic. That is someone, well, don't let that term turn you off. It's just, it just simply means a, a mystic in the Christian tradition is someone who seeks and at some level attains some kind of experience within the mystery of God. Mm-hmm. So the Christian of today very soon will become a mystic, someone that is experiencing God in some real way, or I think they will you know, cease to be a Christian. They will simply not identify. I mean, they're not going to stay tethered entirely by tradition or by uh, threats or by dogma or doctrine. There must be some kind of connection to to the experience of God. And the church actually has all kinds of resources. This is normative Christianity. We've just maybe (laughs) forgotten it. And um, my wife is a... Benedictine trained spiritual director. I mean, she went through a three-year program. Mm. Uh, and this is something I'm going to speak, you know, this is something I really appreciate about Catholics. Uh, they're not in a hurry. <laughs> they're, they're aware of their own, you know, they've been around 2,000 years and they know that. And so, you know, if you wanted to try to have spiritual direction or, you know, spiritual directors in an evangelical church, you'd have them meet, you know, for three Saturdays and call him a spiritual director. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it takes three years in the Catholic church. And Mm -hmm. so um, we, we have the tools, we have the resources to lean into a contemplative mystical Christian faith. And I think that's where the future lies. Hmm. Wow. I love that. Yeah. Great answer. Well, we said that was our last kind of formal question. Would you mind if we ended with just some fun, get to know you better questions? Oh, kind of yeah, rapid fire. We'll, okay. see, we'll see how I do. I don't All, right. Know. <laughs> All right. We'll see. Fantastic. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. All right. Our first question for you. You're a pastor, writer, speaker, climber. Mm-hmm. What would you say is your hidden talent? A hidden talent? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Uh, a hidden talent. I mean... Anything that I'm any good at at all, I pretty much put out there. <laughs> I'm, I'm not hiding it. Uh, I play guitar, but it's I'm not very good at it, so I okay. don't do that very much. So I do uh, play guitar. That's um, fantastic. I'm not, I'm not very good, so I'm shy. To, I mean, every so often someone will coax me into playing guitar and doing a song, but they have to really coax me into it. Hmm. Hmm. I think your hair is your hidden talent. I mean, that you got a <laughs> okay, great head of hair right now because there's rumors out there. Yeah. Uh, when I went on the first Camino in 2016, I grew a beard. Never had a beard, uh, and I just have kept it. And my beard is gray, but my hair is not gray. And people say, "Does he color his hair?" He does not. He does not. <laughs> I do not know why it's on the record. My beard is gray and my hair is brown, but that's just the way it is. Right, let's see. There you go. Uh, you there you go. Here on the Holy yeah. Heretics. <laughs> we'll make sure to put that in our show notes too. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. That's your hidden talent. You have amazing hair quality. <laughs> <laughs> so I also know you come out here in Colorado a lot. What's yes. your favorite spot to hike or climb? Well, I, I it's Rocky Mountain National Park. Mm. It's our home away from home. We have been going there two or three times a year for over 30 years. 
Mm-hmm. And um, well, my youngest son, we have three adult children. They're all married now. And our two oldest, you know, the, the, the first son and the second son live a mile from us across the street from each other. That's why I said I can see the grandchildren playing in my backyard right now. Oh. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but our youngest son, he's the one that really took to the mountains. And I always knew that we weren't going to be able to keep him. He lives in Fort Collins mm-hmm. and is re- and he's become he's a quite an accomplished climber. And so it's it's all within Rocky Mountain National Park. When I'm there, that's my happiest place. I know all the mountains. I've climbed essentially all of them. And um, so I don't look at them and think, oh, there's mountains. I look, oh, there's Chapin and Chiquita and Ypsilon and Longs and Meeker mm-hmm. and Arrowhead and Pagoda and Spearhead. And I mean, I, they're like, I think of them as friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a conference one time with Eugene Peterson out there. and. Mm-hmm. He loves the mountains, but he was, you know, he was elderly by this time. He was in his 80s. But I knew, and I wouldn't do this with hardly anybody, but I knew he would actually like it. (laughs) And so when the conference was over, I drove him all over Rocky Mountain National Park. We'd drive for a mile or two and we'd get out. Mm. And I would, I would name the mountains and, and tell him what they were like, you know, Mm. what their Mm. moods were like, what it was like to climb them. Mm. And we did this for a couple of hours. And he would, he always brought that up. He said, at that time you entered, he called him. I I said, I want to introduce you to my friends. And I did that. And he said, (laughs) he said, I just love the way you introduced me to your friends. (laughs) That is so fun. That's awesome. Now I will say Long's Peak is not my friend. That's a a terrifying mountain. I, I have made it up to the keyhole. A few times, and that's as far as I will go. I, it, I lay in the fetal position, and every and time I've further. climbed it, and I've climbed it different routes. It, um, I'm always reminded this because it is a mountain you can climb non-technically for about six weeks in the summer, but right. it's right on the edge. Right, and I'm right. always reminded this is a dangerous mountain. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, now my youngest son that I was talking about, he's climbed the diamond face, if you know what that means. Oh, yes. Oh, that hurts my heart thinking about it. I mean, you know, just, you know, that's a thousand foot sheer vertical wall. So, and he's also, he's also, this will impress you. (laughs) I'm bragging on my kids. uh, (laughs) He has gone from the ranger station to the summit and back down in four hours. Holy cow. Yeah, most people that's twelve to fifteen hours. Right. Oh my goodness. And, and he's done it in, in four hours, which just of all the things he's done in mountaineering, that's probably the one that impresses me the most because I just <laughs> know what that takes. Right. And wow. I, I can't really, I can't really fat. I would the idea of being that fit, <laughs> that strong, <laughs> would just. I would like to know what that feels like. (laughs) (laughs) So interesting. All right. The last question on my end, you are obviously a world traveler. We've got to gotten to hear about all your wonderful stories. What's your favorite city to enjoy dinner with your wife in? Mm, I can, I can, that I don't have to think. Lisbon, Portugal. Oh, great answer. We've discovered, we discovered Portugal. We've been there how many times? Five or six times. When a publisher bought rights for several books, I think beginning with Unconditional or some, the paperback now is known as Radical Forgiveness, then Beauty Will Save the World, then I can't remember, four books. And they, you know, published them in Portuguese, in Portugal, and then invited me over to do a series of events promoting these books that were coming out in Portugal. Man, I had no idea that Portugal was just such a hidden gem. Oh. And, uh, you know, you don't, you go to Lisbon, it's not so much, but there aren't the big sites like Paris or London or Rome. Mm-hmm. It's just Portugal. Created oh. <laughs> glory. But, you know, and here's the thing. It's a great food city. It's a really great food city. And it's compared to London or Paris or Rome even, it's way more affordable. Hmm. And so, oh, Perry and I always are thinking, I wish we could go out to dinner in Lisbon tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. We, we went to a Michelin star restaurant in Lisbon, and we shared an entree. So we are sharing, an, but we, we shared an entree, 
had a bottle of wine and dessert for seventy dollars. Wow! <laughs> wow, that's and fantastic. It was fabulous. Hmm. We got back to JFK after that trip. Went and got some hamburgers or whatever, <laughs> and it was more than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's Aww. awesome. Uh, all right. La- last question you're going to have to choose here. Uh, Nietzsche or Dostoevsky? Oh, Dostoevsky. All right. I mean, Dostoevsky, I like Nietzsche, but he's wrong. Uh, <laughs> I love Nietzsche and he's right. And uh, yeah, I, I, I have – I'd love – Dostoevsky. I've been to his apartment in St. Petersburg twice. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I have pictures of the desk where he wrote the Brothers Karamazov. To me, it's like a, a shrine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Dostoevsky. Wow. wow. Great answer. Well, Brian, it has been such an honor having you with us today and hearing about your journey or your quest. Thank you for sharing with us. And your new book, When Everything's on Fire, was recently released. Can you give us one reason why our listeners should go grab a copy and read it today? Because I think it will help you uh, see the beauty of Christ that maybe you didn't realize is still present in a world when everything's on fire. Hmm. Great answer. That's perfect. Thank you. And for those who want uh, more from Brian, you can follow him on Twitter at Brian Zond and on Instagram at Brian Zond. Um, and I don't know if you're on Facebook, which is sort of a like, I am. I, I, dumpster. I, have fi- a I mean, speaking of fires, that's a dumpster fire. So well, I, don't know. <laughs> I have a page. It's got like 23,000 followers or whatever they call them. So I don't, I don't have a feed. <laughs> I don't engage with it, but I put stuff there. Okay. So I have a presence there, but I don't see anything. And it's it's the ignorance is bliss is yes. really the truth when it comes <laughs> yep. to Facebook. Well, thank you again. It's been a real treat uh, mm-hmm. to chat to chat with you, to hear I've from enjoyed you, it. and really connect have. with you. Yeah. And uh, we'll connect soon. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this important conversation with Brian Zand. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. But before you go, since this episode drops on Giving Tuesday, will you consider becoming a Patreon member of our show? We've done the math, and it costs upwards of $400 to create each episode. We have a tiny team that almost exclusively volunteers our time to produce Holy Heretics, so your financial support is critical to our ongoing mission. And by becoming a Patreon member, you gain access to each episode five days early. Plus, you have access to our monthly book club and our soon-to-be-released digital course, Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction. Every little bit helps, so head to patreon.com slash holyheretics to become a patron. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.